So we carry on our series, the gospel, the message of the unshakable kingdom. And uh, like I said last week, I, I, I had one of my preachers, which was around scripture, and I'm on number three. And uh, it just seemed to grab my attention as I, as I continued kind of researching and studying what the scriptures are and what the Bible is and this amazing uh, library of books that we have in our hands that I felt that we needed to stay, stay here for a little while. Uh, for those of you who are kind of a little bit sick of the, 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 the mini-series within it, I, this is my last one, so uh, I will move on. But just so that you remember is that the Bible is a definition of the Bible that you hold in your hands, whether on a smartphone, an iPad, or whether it's an actual paged uh, Bible, is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads to Jesus. It's a sacred book. So I'm going to ask you to do something that we've never really done in Lifehouse, and I want you to stand for the reading of Scripture. And if you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord had made. Now remember, you should be asking, okay, talking snake, what is the snake doing in the garden? Those are the questions that start to get conjured up. And as you know, a few weeks ago, Louise unveiled some of the stuff around what we are talking about. And this word crafty is he was devious and more intelligent. And it goes on to say, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree, in the tree, any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say that we must not eat from the fruit, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and also we must not touch it or we will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil and good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree and that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her daft husband who was with her. And he ate it. Sorry, the daft is my own interpretation. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig trees together, and they covered themselves. So, as we can see, you can sit. May God bless the reading of his word to us this morning. So this, Satan goes after two things. You can clearly see up behind me. He goes after the trusting God. And he goes after God's definition of what good and evil is. And God's definition, obviously trusting God is God's got an agenda. God's actually against you. He's holding out on you. And actually he hasn't been truthful to you. Or the definition of good and evil is actually the wisdom that God brings through his word. Don't, don't trust that. Rather trust your own desires. Rather trust the voice, my voice, Satan's voice, the voice of the serpent. And uh, just forget about what God is saying. Now, the thing about, remember we talked about my first preach on the scriptures, is that we need to read the Bible literarily. So we need to understand, okay, what, what kind of genre of literature is Genesis? It's metaphorical. Now, that doesn't mean that it's some kind of myth in the sense. It's not talking about, oh, it's untrue and it's, it's like, a, like Greek mythology, no, no, what it is, it's quite the opposite, is that mythological in its genre is that this is the deepest kind of truth that there is. So at, 
temptation at its core. The temptation that comes to us, the temptation that came to good and evil, um, to good and evil, to Adam and Eve, is to redefine good and evil. And it's based on the voice of the enemy, the worldly system that comes against us, and actually the desires of our own heart, rather than listening to the wisdom and intelligence and the loving design that God has put in His word to us and following what He is saying to us, which leads to the fulfillment of a life that will flourish and the one that He has for us. So the essence of sin is really, if I could say, is about trust. What are we trusting in? Are we trusting in God? Is our faith a one of surrender to the divine purposes and nature of God, or is our trust rather in the, our own desires and the voice of the serpent? I love this guy's name, Ignatius of Loyola. He says that sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is my deepest happiness. See, Satan wants to control the story. Remember, the Bible is a narrative. He wants to control the narrative from which we walk out our lives. He uses, in our day, media. He uses all kinds of stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. Satan still comes to us with the voice in our head and the desires, and he focuses on bringing about lies that we believe and we would rather trust in. And yet we have the narrative of the Scriptures to go to to understand, hold on a second, how do I change the way I think? Which is actually the word metanoia, which is the word repentance in our language. How do I change the way I think, move away from the worldview, this voice, my desires of my flesh, and bring about the change and focus on God and move towards Him and His narrative, His story for my life and for our lives? No one sins out of duty. No one goes, oh, it's 7 o'clock, it's 7 p.m. on Thursday evening, I need to commit adultery. I don't really feel like it, but it's the right thing to do. None of us do that. No, no, we sin because we believe a lie. We, we fall into adultery because we think that by having sex with somebody else other than our spouse, it's going to bring about our happiness because maybe our spouse isn't or was or whatever the case might be. And we think it's going to make us happy. Did God really say that we should be one husband, one wife, or actually should we just continue to play the fields? I, I did a wedding yesterday and uh, while we were away, um, we did the conference that was uh, the Kingdom Come conference, and Bill Johnson told this joke, which I've got to tell because it was brilliant. <coughs> and he talks about this old man. He's kind of really on his latter years of his life, and he's sitting in the boat fishing, as older men generally do. And he has this voice, pick me up, pick me up. And he like, looks around. He can't see anything, carries on fishing. A little while later, pick me up, pick me up. He looks over the side of the boat, and there's this frog. Picks the frog up. Frog says, if you kiss me, I will turn into the most beautiful woman that you've ever imagined in your life. And the old man puts the frog in his pocket. And the frog says, did you not hear what I said? He says, yeah, but at my age, I'd rather have a talking frog. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to share that. So sin is about trusting in our own heart the voice of the enemy, rather than trusting in the word of God. And Adam and Eve chose to do that. And the result is the rest of the Bible. You know that Genesis 3 is basically Groundhog Day for the rest of humanity. Do you know what Groundhog Day means? It's just Genesis 3 on repeat. You read the Bible, whether it's King David, whether it's King Saul, whether it's Samuel, whether it's you know, all of these people, it's like Groundhog Day of Genesis 3. 
Each one of our lives is Genesis 3 on repeat. We choose to trust our own desires, the voice in our head, and the worldly system, rather than trusting in God himself. So, what do we do with this? Because if we see that humanity continues to fail, that you and I continue to fail, well, guess what? Jesus did not fail us. Jordan, won't you play that video, please? the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate, because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible, so let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hair and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so sin is a failure to be truly human, but there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, 
If you don't choose what is good, Chata is crouching at the door. It wants you. But you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. Amazing, eh? So, if you remember what we said was the Bible is this narrative and the Old Testament takes us to a point and then the story kind of just ends. It doesn't have an ending. And if you remember last week, it showed that Jesus then steps into it and takes the story to its completion and will ultimately complete it at the end of this age. And so let's have a look at how he completed the story, how he changed the Groundhog Day that had been up until that point. And it's Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was really hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, notice the same thing, questioning God, questioning his identity, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man should not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice that, that we live by the word of God, by the scriptures, by what he has spoken to us. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. And isn't it interesting how the devil knows Scripture? Watch this. And the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot. The Scripture, I mean, the devil knows that he is so well-versed in Scripture, but he can manipulate it and make it like many people do, Go according to his purposes and his desires. But Jesus answers him. So basically that quote is from Psalm 91. And Jesus comes back with a retort out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Do not put the Lord God to the test. And then finally it says, And again the devil took him to a high mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. 
All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. If you just compromise for a moment, I will give it to you. And Jesus said to me, away from me, Satan. And he comes with Deuteronomy 6. For it is written, worship the Lord God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels attended to him. So at all of this, what we at one kind of level is you've got Satan and Jesus. And what they're doing is they are in conversation around whether or not they are going to trust in the scriptures. And by that act of trusting in the scriptures, they are proving that they trust in God. My question to you this morning is, do you trust the scriptures? Because it is an act or a depiction of whether or not you trust in God himself. See, in the moment of temptation, Jesus doesn't go, no, thank you. Jesus doesn't go, oh, here's my, my scripture, and I'm pulling out my sword, and I'm fighting the enemy. In some sense, that's true. But actually, what Jesus says, no, I am using the word of God as an act of trusting in scripture, which is really a depiction of my worship and my trust in God himself. So it's not about when you're feeling temptation, you throw out a scripture and you, you try and bring to remember and you go, know this and know that. And no, I'm more than a conqueror. On one level, there's a helpful aspect to that. But the question is, is are you living out those scriptures that it's becoming part of you that when you quote that scripture, it's not just some kind of, oh, out there kind of thing, but it's part of who you are. Because when he understood that and when it was a source from out of which, he, which came from him, what happened was that that was the source from which he overcame the temptation and he brought about healing and renewal for humanity and stopped the Groundhog Day. See, this posture that we talk about in terms of Scripture, this posture that Jesus had towards the Scripture is really what we call biblical authority. It's about living under, in my prayer before this, it's living under the Scriptures and not standing on the Word. Maybe we go, oh, let's stand on the Word. No, you don't stand on the Word. Let's put our heads below our hearts. Let's allow God to speak to our hearts, open up the eyes of our hearts that we might see Him. The word authority is kind of a swear word in our Western world, isn't it? And where does this come from? Well, it really kind of stems from a man called Sigmund Freud, who's almost what we would call the father of last century psychology. And he has a, a summary, is that he taught that all neurosis is due to the repression of desire from an internal source or an oppression of desire from an external source. He said that authority, such as the state or God or the Bible or the church or tradition, gender and all those kind of things, is there to keep us in check and to make society work for all. The problem is, is that we are oppressed from without and sorry, oppressed from without and repressed from within. Therefore, because we shove down those desires, we are unhappy. So what's the answer? What's the solution? The solution to the problem is to be true to yourself. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You be you. And do what you want to do, and do not allow anybody to tell you what to do, or as long as it doesn't harm anybody. And that's all great, except we all have a, defini a, a different definition of what is harm. So, when people say, Gary, oh, so you live under the authority of the Scriptures, that's a little weird. You're living under the authority of some ancient writings that are from some other part of the world that are written by dead people. <laughs> rather than your own inclinations, which Sigmund Freud tells us to do. And so what we do is we have a misunderstanding of biblical authority. And so what I want to do is I want to look at what authority there is out there. There's structural authority. As you can see, it's like this power to coerce and control. Example would be a, uh, in the military. And if you ever see any of the military things, or if you've ever been in the military, hey, your sergeant, your corporal, whatever, you need to listen to what's going on. 
and, and you make sure that you listen to them because that's the way it's been put in place. There's a structural authority. Yeah, you, you go, hey, and, and, and go, go get that, that leaf on top of that mountain and come back. And you do it because that's what is expected. And you do it because there's consequences that if you don't, what's going to happen? Or you'll be court-martialed or worse, and you're going to be disciplined. And so we don't necessarily, in those particular structural authorities, we don't necessarily obey because we want to, or it's kind of a heartfelt, oh, I trust in that. But we actually fear the punishment of whether we don't obey. So what happens? We go down on holiday to Cape Town, and it takes 14 hours if we travel at 120 k's an hour. But if we travel at 200 k's an hour, we can get there in under 10 hours. But we don't because we know that there's traffic cams and there's police on the way. And so we obey the rules because we are fearful of the punishment that will result if we don't obey the rules. So when authority is not around, what do we do? We do what we want. So structural authority, the thing about it is, is it can't actually free our hearts. It can't free my heart. What it will do is it will keep the boundaries and it will stop me from doing certain things. But it actually it doesn't bring me into freedom. So what we need is we need spiritual authority. And spiritual authority is actually the access point to reality, the access point to the way things really are. And if we don't understand that that's what Scripture brings us, we miss the whole point of what this narrative and what this Bible is. It's not located in a position, but it's located in a person, and it's located in moral knowledge. Now, what, what do you mean moral knowledge? Well, what happened in the Age of Enlightenment was our, the whole thing about moral knowledge and, and theology was, it, was moved into the domain or moved out of the domain of knowledge. In other words, technology and science are those, those aspects. We can know that if gravity is this and uh, you know, uh, all, all, of, all of the kind of scientific equations and you know, all, all of what we understand scientific things to be that we can prove. And it was moved out of that knowledge into a space of opinion and belief. The way we think, how we feel, and maybe even wishful thinking. And even though science and technology are wonderful things, the thing about science and technology is it cannot answer the most important questions of humanity. Why do we exist? Why are we here? What is good and what is evil? What does a good person look like? And how do I become a good person? See, what the biblical writers clearly assume is that there is a moral knowledge. And the fact is, is that in the Hebrew, there's this word called wisdom, and in, it's called hokmah. And this word hokmah actually is to live in alignment with reality. So when you go and read Proverbs and you say, wisdom is a garland of grace over your neck and all, it's not like, oh, being clever. Wisdom is actually living in alignment with God's word because that's the way to be truly human. Jesus came and showed us how to be truly human, to be like him. So what the biblical writers are saying is we can know ethics, we can know theology, we can know God. Yes, on a totally different metric system to science, but we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt God, because as much as there are natural laws, there are also relational, spiritual, and moral laws that we can understand and know, and we cannot fight against them. They, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. Your opinion can be, I can fly. Well, go on top of our building and let me see. We all know what the result will be. And it's the same thing as if we think we can go against the natural laws that have been put into the universe by God, morally, relationally, and spiritually, we land up in a place where yeah, let me call it a destructive place. So, so much of the Bible is about a story about 
poetry, about statements, and less about commands. And the reason for that is because it's trying to show us reality. Many of us want this rule book. But if you look at Jesus, if you look at the, his parables, what does he do? He doesn't command. He just says, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the kingdom of God. He says you will reap what you sow. He says things like um, it's better or more blessed to give than receive or the last will be first. These are not commands. These are principles that we understand that servant-hearted leadership and the whole world now, if you go read all the, the, the kind of pop culture of the time in terms of writings about leadership, it's about servant-hearted leadership. It's like, oh, great. Jesus was talking about that over 2,000 years ago. You've only caught up now. So when we look at Scripture, we see that the disciples captured the way that Jesus lived. And it was less about commands, less about this rule, let me, let, let me follow all of these rules and do what I need to do. But Jesus' life bore witness to what he was doing and why he was doing it. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus' interpretation of Scripture in a couple of chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And at the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, this is what happens. When Jesus had finished saying all of these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. What was Jesus' accusation towards the teachers of the law? You expect all the people to do these things, but you yourself don't do those. But have you ever come across people like that in your life? They're the ones who say the right things, but actually when you look at their lives, what they say they don't do, but they expect you to do it. They expect you to live out a life towards them and they want you to love them in a certain way, but they don't reciprocate and they don't live their lives out in the same way. I've met many people throughout my, my life that are like that. They, they want to be preachers on the pulpits, but actually when you look at their lives, they're not actually walking out what they're preaching. And it's difficult. Trust me, every single week I stand up here and I preach and this week I will be tested on what I say. The reality is Jesus, what he showed, was that word authority is the word exousia. And it's actually a, a word that's got a, a preposition called ek, which is to be out of, and ousia, which is to be within himself. So it's an authority that came from within. For us to have an authority in the scriptures, we need the scriptures within, and we need to walk it out so that our lives depict what the scriptures are saying, so that when we declare the scriptures, when we declare the good news, people go, that is a reality. Who else in our lives have we seen? There are people like Nelson Mandela who didn't start his leadership life with structural authority. He wasn't the president. But he spoke truth and he spoke reality. And people watched his life and they realized that what he was saying and what he was doing measured up with the way he lived out his life. And they said, that's reality. In the same way, Jesus does the same thing. Jesus takes the word of God. He quotes it. It's part of his life. He walks it out. And people see that this is a man who understands the Scripture, who lives his life by the Scripture, and there's a reality to the way he is, and it's the actual reality with the way humanity should be walking out their lives, and they see the authority and they follow. Are we doing the same thing? Jesus didn't operate under the structural authority. He wasn't part of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't part of the Roman Senate. He wasn't any of those things. And that's why Jesus is calling us to a place where we don't go, oh, Jesus never went... All right, Jesus came and he preaches. How many people walked away from him? Remember that moment where he says, come and eat of my flesh. And it says, many left. Jesus didn't go, hey, God, just smite them. But we do that. If I'm preaching here and someone walks out, I go, hey, come sit down. What are you doing? Why are you offended? Jesus said, okay, 
Why? Because Jesus gave such respect to human dignity that actually he will still allow us to choose, even though that will end up in an end of destruction in our lives. Romans chapter 1, Louise was sharing with me this morning, or not this week, that she, she was reading the story of a lady who was caught up in lesbianism. And she read Romans chapter 1, where it says God actually ultimately gets to a point where he says, okay, if that's what you want, I'm going to hand you over to your own desires. How many of us are being handed over to our own desires because we're just saying, God, I want that, I want that. I want to define what's good and evil. I want with this, and you're withholding from me, God, and that's what I want, so that's what I'm going to do. And Jesus actually says, okay, if that's what you want, then you can have it, even though I know that that's going to result in your destruction. And the thing is, is it's not God who brings about the destruction. It's not God who pours down heaven, I mean, the fire of heaven from you, on you. It's actually about the fact that when we put ourselves into that place, which is not the way that God has called us to live, to flourish and to thrive, we actually bring about that destruction on ourselves. And God weeps as he watches us walk into that way. We make the decision, and we become corrupted from the inside out. So, are we living under the authority of the Bible? Are you living under the authority of the Bible? Because if you do that, you're actually living under the authority of God himself. Because we listen to and we obey, and that is our act of worship and trust and love towards God. If we don't, we live in the conflict of that reality and out of alignment with the reality that God has called us into. And we can look at various things, human sexuality, relationships, money, all of those kind of things. And like I said, we will suffer the consequences because we live under the natural laws that if we choose this, this is what will happen. If I choose to jump off the building without some kind of wing or parachute, I'm going to suffer the consequence. If we choose to not do what the scriptures are telling us to do, we will land up in the consequences of the natural laws that God has put in place. We decide and we either live in it or with it or against it. So let me ask you this question. If the Bible is a story, how do we live under the authority of a story? Because within the context of a story, there are still commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me, and all of those kind of things. And sometimes there's contradictory commands. Sometimes you turn the other cheek versus, no, you'll reap what you sow, or if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And you go, okay, but how? Old Testament, New Testament, and we get a little bit confused. Which one do we pick? Which one do we choose? Which one do we obey? Is there a logic? Is there a coherency to it? Uh, remember last week I said the Bible is not a rule book, and we can't treat it as a rule book. And the reason why we can't treat it as a rule book is because sometimes you get a command that is in one part of the story, which is right for that part of the story. But later on, it's not right for that story. So take my kids. When they were like between two and four, for them to be cooking at the stove would be really unhelpful. But now that they're teenagers, I'm like, you make supper. That was a joke. Teenager making supper, really. So... The point is, is that different parts of the story require different things. So circumcision. All the guys go, thank goodness that was for the older part of the story. What about multiracial marriage? At one stage, God said no to Israel. Now it's okay. Why? Different part of the story. The story has moved on. What about slavery? What about war? What about the food laws? What about the kind of food that we eat? No, because there were certain times where you could only do certain things at certain parts of the story, and now there's a different time and a different part of the story which we live in. They weren't bad at that time, but now 
they're not really part of the story that we live out now. So, if the Bible's not a rule book, how do we choose? How do we know which ones to obey? I'm glad you asked that question. The reason how we do this is he has three basic rules of hermeneutics on how to read the Bible. Number one, and the most important, is the primary way of interpreting a text is to look at its authorial, the author's intent, both to the culture of the time and to the people that he was writing or she was writing the letter to. It's important to understand that because otherwise we get the wrong idea of why this particular text was being written. And we just follow it blindly, but actually maybe it's not part, part for our story now and was for their story then. So now what we do is, oh no, we mustn't eat certain types of food. And we forget that actually God appeared to Peter and said, no, no, come and eat. All things are good. Secondly, the Bible is this long, complex story, which is an overall narrative. And some parts, like I've said, are specifically binding and some aren't. And thirdly, we live at the same part of the New Testament or the story within the New Testament. So all of those things we are actually bound to actually follow. So everything that Paul writes, we are bound to follow. When, you, when he starts to talk about things, you've got to go, okay, hold on a second. This is part of the story that we are still living in. As much as there's Revelation, Revelation is a story of the end times. The story now is we are between what Jesus did and the end times. So there are some clearly obvious things where Paul says to Timothy, okay, go to Ephesus and do this and do that. Now, you don't have to buy a ticket to Turkey and go to Ephesus. Those were specific commands that were there. Or maybe worship the emperor. We don't have an emperor to worship, so let's not make an emperor up. And so we don't follow those kind of things. And it often we are to take what is said in the Bible and to translate it into our culture. So greet one another with a, with a holy kiss. So if I go to, come here, my brief. Many of you went, hey, what's that? Do we see that in society? I probably only kiss my dad. I'm talking about a man. But we don't greet each other with this sloppy wet kiss, do we? Why not? Well, because in AD 55, there was a different expression of what that meant to 2020 Joburg. What is it trying to say? It's trying to say, rather, actually, let me greet Derek in a way that he feels part of the family. So how do I warmly and expressively greet Derek in a way that he feels welcome and belong here in Lifehouse? And maybe it's just a fist bump. Hey, how's it? Maybe it's a high five. Hey, glad to see you. Maybe it's a big hug. Is Debbie here? Debbie gives the best hugs in the world. But I know that some women, their way of expressing that is a side hug. That's actually okay. Now, what we do is we want to translate AD 55 into here. And I've heard people say, and even people close to me go, no, we have to hug each other and give it front on. No, some women don't like that. Well, because there's some obvious expressions of body parts touching that people don't want to be touched. So how do we translate that into our culture from what the biblical precedent is showing? How do we warmly and demonstratively welcome somebody when we see them? Instead of, oh, how's it? Oh, you here. That's what Paul is actually talking about. Treat one another as family. So we have to enter into the dialogue of Scripture. 
in terms of our, of our culture and make sure that as followers of Jesus, we are following out the principles in 2020 that were set back then and not go around kissing each other, which will land up actually. So we have scripture that for thousands of years, people have followed the principles of it. We need to go there and understand it, not just this late Western European thought of how it is. So you ask me, Kigari, how do we do this? How do we study scripture? I'm glad you asked the question because here it is. Come to church. One thing I will guarantee you, and if, you, and if you've been around here long enough, you will know, certainly from my perspective, I don't take this moment lightly. I prepare my bottom off. That's why I've got a small bum. Now I'm teasing. I said that once and got in trouble in a previous church, but I leave the church now so I can do what I want. No, sorry, Lord. Sorry. Come to church and follow the series. Do you think we just go, um, gospel, unshakable kingdom? Yeah, that's cool. Oh, let's, let's do uh, recalibrate spiritual formation. Let's do emotional healthy spirituality. No, God, where, where to? I'm asking God, where to in our next series? Do we carry on with this gospel? Because it's got so much traction and so much of what God wants to speak to us about. Do we deal with money and finances because economically things are whatever? God, where are you saying? Where do we go? If you come to church, you hear the word preached to you. That's been, we've, I've looked at stuff. I've listened to stuff. I've, I've, I've read stuff. And I'm going, God, how does this work? My wife, Louise, I promise you, spends hours and rabbit trails of notes trying to bring a word to come. And I know everybody else to come to you guys and say, hey, this is the study of the word. We, we're not just wanting to come and give you some, oh, here we go. You know, Jesus loves me. This I know, for my Bible tells me so. As much as that's brilliant and it's true, we want to make sure that what we bring you is, is food and not just milk, but meat to chew on, to go away with and to listen to again. There, guys, if you want this, I have got a Dropbox folder that has the PowerPoint slides and all my notes. I write out all my notes. I don't preach at all, but all my notes are there, all eight to 12 pages, depending on the, the preach. And you can go through it with the examples, with the scriptures, and throughout the week, you can go and study it yourself. And I've already laid that platform for you. There are a number of folks who have come to me and asked, and are part of that group. I, I will happily send or, or, or include you as an invite onto that Dropbox folder. I know that there's people here who take their domestic workers through it, and they pray through it. That's what we need to be doing as the church. Not just go, oh, what did Gary preach on Sunday? Oh, I don't know. Not, I think it was the Bible. Um, I don't know about you, but I won't remember. I'm preaching this, and you can ask me in three months' time, what was that scripture you shared on? Oh. No, no, we've got to keep just on on and memorizing scripture, etc. Go to life group or Bible studies. The Bible studies have become a thing of the past, which is weird. Bible study is not a bad word. We need to study the Bible together. That's why we do CBR. Why? Because reading the Bible on your own is worse than not reading your Bible at all. That's why we've got those apps. That's why we heard this morning. That's why we're saying, guys, get part of a WhatsApp group on CBR so that we can read the Bible together, that we can share things, that we can encourage one another every single day. I know Kerry posted on Thursday as well. I want to smack Solomon. Hey, Kerry, where are you? Yeah, yeah. And it's true. It's like he has a guy who has the, all the wisdom and he chooses to mess it up. Why? Because he chose not to follow scripture, chose to follow his own desires and had how many wives? 
And how many concubines? I mean, oh my goodness. Now we go, oh, it's, yeah, but how many of us are watching things on the internet and we've got a digital harem? So let's not smack Solomon too much. Life groups, we do that when relationally. You see, reading scripture, is, that's a story, it's relational. It's not some kind of, oh, study can't be, okay, let me, let me study this, let me memorize this, okay, this is how I'm going to do this, this is going to, no, no, it's about a relational contact with Christ, with Father God, with Holy Spirit who illuminates, it becomes transformative, and I start to engage people around me, and together we move together. If you're not in a life group, I know evenings during the week we're in a busy city, but if you're not prioritizing time for that, you're at a deficit zone. We don't do it because you're busy your lives. It's amazing how many people stop coming to church because they get busy. It's amazing how many people, they want kids and they're struggling and they're struggling to fall pregnant and they fall pregnant and you don't see them again. People who are struggling for a job and they find a job and you don't see them again. And then they wonder why two, three years down the line. The thing I posted about Solomon, which was mentioned by Alicia, isn't it interesting that God actually smashed or punished the future generations and not Solomon himself? I know people who've had kids, kids who got baptized in the church, are full of faith, are top scholars, are top sports people in the, in the, in the, in the school. And, and this is a true story. The parents walk away from faith, and their kids just fall over, boom. Start drinking, start struggling academically, don't, re, don't really involve themselves in sport in the way they used to anymore. You know what? When parents make that decision, they actually bring about the punishment upon their kids and future generations. And that's what Solomon did. And it looks all great. Because, hey, we're so glad we don't have to go to church on Sunday because we've got the full weekend ahead of us. And we can go do our own thing. We're going to go to the Vol. We're going to go ski. And we, I'd love to do that. But I know that it, by living my life out of the Scriptures, by living out my life within community so that I can influence others and others influence me, and when I'm going through a tough time, I can say, guys, help, I'm struggling. And the community comes around us and takes us and carries us, just like I spoke about Moses holding his arms up in the battle and having Ur and Aaron hold it up so that the Amalekites could be overcome. Podcasting. I'm spending time on this because I'm saying we have so much information available to us and yet we are so ignorant about the Scriptures. There are some amazing podcasts out there that we can go listen to. Everything from the Reformed, which is on the right here, which is John Piper and, and the likes. You've got Bridge Time with John Marcoma. You've got um, Lifehouse Church, which has got amazing preaching. Sorry, I had to put that in there. There are so many different, you've got Tim Mackey, you've got all of these guys from the Bible Project. There are so many things that we can go listen to in our cars. It's not about, you don't have to read, I'm not a great reader. Louise reads like, I'm like, how did you read all that in so much, so little time? I read and I fall asleep. But listening, I love listening. In my car, sit there listening in my, in my study. God, what are you saying? He has, a, he has an amazing podcast. He has an amazing YouTube clip of XYZ. He has Bible Project. That speaks to me. I'm an accountant and analytical, but somehow pictures speak to me way more than words. Who are you? What, what is your makeup? How do you engage Scripture? Not just with this Bible that's black and white and go, oh, I don't know what it's saying. And you read Leviticus and you, what? Lamentations and you want to slit your wrist with a bus ticket. How, no, let's, this is the story of God. How do we fit into it? God, what are you saying to me now? How do I translate it into my culture now? I want to live from the inside out so when I move and have my being, I leave your fingerprints on the people around me so that I make a difference in this world. 
and your kingdom comes, and your rule and reign in my life is exhibited in my community around me. Bible Project, we've spoken enough about that. Do you know that you can go and study Scripture, in a sense, online for nothing, by just going to listen to N.T. Wright? Alexander Fenter has been in here, the most understated Bible teacher of our time, in my view. Michael Eaton. I mean, we, I could keep going. All of these guys who are phenomenal preachers of God's Word and truth, and we can go study Scripture under their kind of mentorship, in a sense. We've got access to that. And what do we do? We don't do it. And we wonder why our lives aren't flourishing, despite the fact that even though the circumstances might be putting on us, we will flourish no matter what the circumstances are if we have our identity in Him and we are living our lives based on Scripture. Reading commentaries, study Bibles. There are so many resources out there. Get yourself onto Olive Tree, onto Logo Software. There's so much out there that you can read until you can do nothing else but read and you'll never get to the end of it. Okay, I've made my points. I'm moving on and I'm going to land up. Posture is so key. It's my last point. Posture is so key to how we live out our lives from the Scriptures. What do I mean? I mean, we don't read the Bible to answer questions. I went to study Koine Greek because I wanted to answer people's questions and I got so much more. I got so much more about this Greek language which was actually spoken into a Hebraic culture and when I take both of those, the Word of God comes alive to me. I read Scripture because I want to know God, not answers to my questions because when I know God, the answers to my questions come as a result. But if I look to find answers to the questions, then what do I do? I come with my own baggage, my own vision, my own understanding, my own problems, my own brokenness, and I start to interpret Scripture through that so that I know, oh, I think Scripture means this because that speaks and it doesn't make me feel any guilt and shame. And then I become Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson did what? He took the Bible and he went, I don't like that text. Take it out. I don't like that text. And it's in the museum. He literally took out all the text that he didn't like and made a new Bible for himself. Why? Because he wanted to promote slavery and his own promiscuity. So now I don't have to feel bad because the Bible that I've got that doesn't say that sleeping with somebody other than your wife is a bad thing. Oh, slavery. I've got people who I'm making do and coercing to do things for me because I don't want to do it for myself. And I won't pay them. I'll feed them, but I'm going to make sure that they do what I tell them to do. And we do the same thing in our lives in different ways with our own opinions, our own desires, and our own assumptions around what the Word of God is. But the Scriptures is about discovering God in His story to understand that there is moral knowledge, that there is ethical knowledge, that I come into alignment with reality of what God is saying, that I don't search for validation, but I search for revelation. Otherwise, all I hear is the echo of my own voice, the echo of Satan's voice, and the echo of society that pushes and impinges upon me, and I start to live my life out like that, and guess what? The Word of God then has no prophetic power to change me, and it becomes informational rather than transformational, and I become hard, and I become religious and legalistic, and this is how it's done. And If you don't do that, if you're gay, you're going to hell. That's not what the Bible says. Go and read it. And it's not that I'm promoting homosexuality. What I'm saying is, is that go and read what it's actually saying. Homosexuality is a sin just like any other. And if you're going to choose to live your life in a homosexual lifestyle, as Christians, we have treated people like that with absolute disdain and it's horrific and it's an indictment on the church. Is it wrong? Yes. Is it sinful? Yes, we've just seen it. But actually, we should be loving on people like that 
and not judging on them because they will not inherit the kingdom of God here, the side of eternity. But if they believe in God, despite their sin, despite what's going on inside of them, they will still go to heaven. But the legalistics, what do they do? Oh, you're going to hell. No, my friend, you are the Pharisee and maybe you're going. Because actually the word of God is in your head and not your heart. And if we don't have love and compassion, the word of God comes like a hammer and smashes. But when love and compassion comes and we say, my friend, you have chosen to live a life, which I'm going to respect, but I'm going to love on you. And I'm telling you, you're not living in a life that's going to be flourishing and thriving because that's not the best God's got for you. And you're believing a lie about your identity and your sexuality. And I would love to walk alongside you and love you no matter what you choose. But actually, I want to see you in heaven one day, no matter what your choices are, because you choose Jesus first. And when you choose Jesus, then you become like that woman who reads Romans 1 and goes, oh, I've handed myself over to my own, or God's handed me over to my own desires. I need to change, and I need to tell the world about it. My question is, is what do you trust? <clears throat> your own mental maps, the voice in your head, your desires, culture, or do you trust Jesus? And isn't it interesting that Jesus finishes his discourse with repent and believe? Repent, metanoia. That's how I started this message. Repentance, metanoia, means to change the way we think. Jesus is calling us to actually stop and to change every aspect of how we have thought about how the world exists and go to his scripture and allow that narrative to wash over us so that internally things start to change and we think differently and we move and we face God and we live out the life that he has called us to because through that we are transformed. Through that we engage God. Through that we flourish. Through that we are a people that access, the scriptures are the access point of reality where we move into a place where we start to live out a life that he always destined for us and become truly human. Let's stand. Like I've said, structural authority is me as a pastor saying to you guys, you will read the Bible, otherwise you can't be a member here. I'd like to do that, to be honest. Uh, it'd be good for you. It's like taking, you know, telling a kid to take medicine. It's like telling your kids to clean up their rooms. It's like all of those kind of things. But actually, spiritual authority is hopefully I've inspired you somewhat to, to move towards the Scriptures and read them every day. To allow the narrative, the story, God's story, His story, to be saturated in his story that we become more like Jesus and we become more truly human because he came to Project Planet Earth to show us how to be truly human. And out of that, we live that life that starts to impact others and draws them into the kingdom of God because they go, no, that, that is reality. How did you get there? Well, here's my Bible. Here's the access point. This is the way things truly are. And how we do that is we live in community, for community, for what God has for us to be an influence around that people would come under the rule and reign of God. So let me pray for you, and then we'll enter into some worship to close the morning, and I'll hand over to Anthony. Can you get into a posture of surrender? Whatever that looks like. Maybe it's your hands in the air. Maybe you even need to sit. Maybe you need to kneel. Whatever that is for you. <clears throat> you don't even have to do something physically. Maybe it's just in your heart where you're posturing to, you have a posture of surrender. So, so, Lord Jesus, we, we come with surrendered hearts this morning. And we say thank you for your scriptures. Thank you that you say that the scriptures speak about you and that's where eternal life is found. 
Thank you that your disciples wrote about what you said so that we have it in our hands, this most magnificent book <laughs> that is an access point to reality, the way things truly are. And I pray, Lord, that Holy Spirit, that you would move us this morning and give us an insatiable appetite for your word, your scriptures, and then to live it out in a way, God, that is truly amazing and draws others into your kingdom and under your lordship because you are the savior of the world. Thank you, Father, that you have loved us so much and because of that great love that you have for us, that you, Lord Jesus, died for our sins and then you gave us your righteousness. What an amazing gospel. May it settle on us this morning and God, may it enthuse, may it energize, may it May it drive us towards more of you. May it drive us to read your scriptures and get involved in community-based reading. May it drive us to encourage one another with the word. May it drive us to not be like those, as it says in Hebrews 10, that don't meet together anymore because they just don't feel like it. But that actually everyone's here because we want to serve one another and we're not here just for ourselves. But you called us to be a community that influences and so, God, I stand here, Lord, as a trophy of your grace. And may I leave your fingerprints on people's lives and not my own. Holy Spirit, will you be the after speaker? And anything I've said that is not of you, that you would just drown out and it'll fall to the ground. But that which is of you, God, that which is of your heart. Wow, Siri even asked me. We don't understand sometimes, Lord. But we surrender ourselves to you. For you are God and there is no other. For you are God and there is none like you. Come and have your way as we step off the thrones of our hearts. As we put, come under scripture as an authority. We change our worldview. We change it to a biblical view that you have put in your scriptures. And we say to you, God, be the glory forever and ever.